Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to worship today. Pastor and author John Ortberg tells about a time when he came face-to-face with human suffering. He was a seminary student, and he went to a state-run convalescent hospital uh, to try to bring a little cheer. He actually went on Mother's Day and to try to bring a little cheer to some of the ladies there, and he met a woman named Mabel. Now, Mabel had been in this state-run convalescent center for this hospital for 25 years. She was um, blind, nearly deaf, and uh, cancer was actually eating away at her face, and so she, she drooled constantly. And as he got to know her story a little bit, he found out that she had actually grown up on a small farm. She helped her mom manage that farm until her mom passed away, and then she kind of managed it by herself until the, uh, the sickness she was dealing with and the blindness and some of the physical challenges caused her to have to leave and go into this convalescent hospital. And um, she was, when he first saw her, she was kind of strapped to a chair to keep her from falling. Uh, her three roommates were, were human vegetables who screamed occasionally, but, but never, never talked. And um, sometimes they would soil their, their bed clothing. And because the hospital was understaffed, the stench was unbearable. Now, this was Mabel's existence, not just for a week or, or a month, not for a year, but she had been there for 25 years, and this was her existence day in and day out. Now, we're going to return to Mabel's story in just a little bit, but let me ask you the question. Have you ever come face-to-face with pain and suffering? Most of us don't like it when we do. If it comes on the TV, we quickly turn the channel. It's just a bit unpleasant. But have you ever faced it? Maybe you witnessed it in someone else, someone you cared about, perhaps. Or, or maybe it's been your own experience. One thing is for sure, eventually, if you live very long in this world, you come to the conclusion that this world has a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And you really just can't get away from it. Now, today, in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 and 7, we come to a section that many people call the Great Tribulation. You may recall two weeks ago, last week was a little unusual, we stopped the tour bus and took sort of a panoramic view of four different approaches to the millennium. But two weeks ago, we stopped off in chapter 5 where there was a scroll written on the inside and the out. And you remember, it was sealed with seven seals. And no one was able to open it except the Lamb. He was the one who was worthy, and all of heaven was worshiping him. And what we run into here in this section is a description of tribulation. In fact, we're going to see later in chapter 7, verse 14, it uses the phrase, great tribulation. 
As you heard last week, some people believe that is exactly seven years of great tribulation. Just a reminder, that doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, the seven years. That is an inference, a certain interpretation from the book of Daniel that some of the views we looked at last week believe that it's literally seven years. Others believe it's just a, a, a season of time. But as you heard, there are a number of different camps and beliefs about what we as Christians will experience. So without lingering there long, I just re- want to remind you of three key views about what we will experience in tribulation. You may remember that one of the views was called a pre-tribulation view, that the rapture will occur prior to the great tribulation. That is easily the most popular view in North America among evangelical Christians, to be sure. A second view is that we would be raptured, caught up to meet him in the air at the midpoint of the tribulation. People like Marvin Rosenthal have called that the pre-wrath rapture of the church. Uh, Someone back in the 1950s that I named, Harold John Ockengay, a very influential preacher, one of the founders of uh, Fuller Seminary, and a very, very popular leader in the 50s came to believe it would be a mid-tribulation rapture. So a mid-trib rapture. I have a friend that I've grown to respect in the area, a wonderful pastor, and we were chatting this week, and he said, well, Rex, I'm pre-trib, but I'm preparing for mid-trib. He's one of these guys who cans a lot of things and keeps his cellar full of goods and all that. I'm pre-trib, but I'm preparing for mid-trib. And so that's another school of thought. And then, of course, that third school of thought, the post-trib rapture people, which fall in that historical premillennial category, they believe that we will endure all seven years of that tribulation and then Christ will return. Now, I don't want to say any more about that now other than this. You remember that old show, Let's Make a Deal? Remember that show? I don't know. There may still be reruns on somewhere of that show, but there were usually three doors, right? And people would make a choice between these three doors, and they didn't know what was behind it. But, but I want to tell you, I've learned something about human nature. If we've got three doors that we're choosing from, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, if door number one means no suffering, door number two means some suffering, door number three means a lot of suffering, let me tell you, we're going to choose door number one every single time, right? You would agree. We don't want to face suffering in our lifetime, and yet the truth is we are going to experience it. So, with your Bible open, let's dive in now to Revelation chapter 6, and let's see what God has to tell us about going through suffering. Let's see what we can learn here. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, 
and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another course came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay one another. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. Now, let's stop right there and talk about these four horses. Billy Graham wrote a book back in 1983 with what I think is a provocative title. Here's the title, Approaching Hoofbeats, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And so these four horses are often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But what do they mean? Well, folks, the reason we took last week to talk about those four different views and what I called, uh, you know, millennial mania is because the views here are so different, it almost becomes comical when you study what different people think these mean. The views on what this rider on the first horse is supposed to mean, who it is on the white horse, go all the way from Jesus Christ himself to the Antichrist, and just about everything in between. There's all kinds of creative ideas. But those who think that this represents Christ believe this first horse is kind of representing the galloping gospel of God where the Lord goes out and shoots his arrow and it penetrates our heart and and we believe the gospel and we become Christian. And then these other calamities follow that. And so that's one line of interpretation here. Those who believe this may represent Antichrist or some great enemy of the gospel believe that we should ignore the connection between the white horse in chapter 19 which represents Jesus coming back in his second coming. And that connection is not necessarily important because there's a great fluidity in apocalyptic literature and we don't have to always see this great consistency. Jesus would never be connected, these interpreters would say, with these horrible other things with the other horsemen. But for John's readers, I doubt that this was difficult to understand. I'm giving you now my view. Because they had some neighbors just to the east of them called the Parthians. And the Parthian warriors were the only mounted warriors of the day who were archers. And and guess what color of horse they were known for? You guessed it. White. 
And so he's describing here this rider on the white horse. It probably refers to conquest, perhaps military conquest. And I simply want to ask you today, has there ever been a time when the white horse has not been riding? From Genghis Khan to Nazi Germany, the white horse rides. It was true then, it's true now, as ISIS seeks to conquer with its reign of terror and intimidation, the white horse of conquest rides. The second horse there, of course, was the red horse. The red is the color of blood and carnage. Red horse brings conflict. This rider carries a large sword. He disrupts peace everywhere he goes. Most commentators believe this horse represents war. Turns men and women against each other and destroys the peace. Now, need any evidence that the red horse rides? Probably not. If you do, just turn on your TV. There's a little saying among the media, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Conflict, carnage, blood. You'll see it not just among nations, but among neighbors. And in homes, the red horse rides and brings conflict. Now, I've often been asked, Pastor Rex, do you believe that this red horse represents a nuclear holocaust? Maybe World War III, maybe. And certainly, at least one or two of the views we looked at last week, that has been a prominent teaching among proponents of those views. But I would say to you, maybe, but go to North Korea today. You'll see the red horse riding. Go to Syria or Iraq where ISIS rules with terror. Go into a Jewish neighborhood where a Jewish person receives Christ and you'll see the red horse ride. As Orthodox Jewish mothers are literally pulling their hair out as their child receives Jesus as Messiah. Go to a Muslim country where a young person lets her parents know, Mom, Dad, I saw a dream and, and, and a friend told me about someone is the same one I saw in my dream and Jesus, I've come to believe that Jesus is truly Lord. And watch as the red horse rides and that girl gets disowned by her family and literally put out on the street. That's the kind of conflict and suffering that the first hearers of this letter were experiencing. And that's what millions, millions of true believers are still experiencing today as the red horse rides. And then there's the black horse. The black horse brings famine and economic collapse. There'll always be wars and conflict, and there'll always be the economic devastation that follows war. We read about the rider on the black horse carrying scales. Scales, of course, were used in this ancient world to weigh things, to measure economy, food, money. And we read this rider is carrying scales. And then these prices are shouted out from heaven. A quart of wheat for a day's wages. Three quarts of barley for a day's wages. By the way, a quart of wheat was the ration that a Roman soldier received for daily grain. Wheat was more expensive than barley. 
you could buy about three times as much barley for the same amount of money as you could wheat. And then it says, don't damage the oil and the wine. Most commentators believe that says, look, there will still be luxury items if you've got the money to buy them. The rich will always fare better in a time of famine. But the economy here has collapsed. And I would simply ask you, as you read this, is, does this describe the world we live in? When you look around, you see that people all around the world are wondering, will I have water to drink? Will I have food to eat? Statisticians tell us who study world demography and trends, they tell us that the majority of the population on planet Earth today lives on less than $2.50 a day. 80% of the population lives on less than $10 a day, and approximately 22,000 children die every day, either from starvation, malnutrition, situations related to poverty. And there's a quarter of the population on earth deals with some serious food insecurities. I ask you, is the black horse of famine riding? But that leads us to the fourth seal, this pale or green horse. Some of your translations will have green, others will have pale. Uh, the Greek word is chloros. We get the word chlorine for that. from that. It's describing this sickly green-looking horse. The pale horse is, is death himself, and the grave is, is following him. So it, there are these four seals that are open. But I want you to catch what I believe is one of the key takeaways from this. And it's this both comforting and disturbing news. It's comforting and disturbing at the same time. God, the sovereign one, is not necessarily causing, but he is allowing these horsemen to ride. The white horse, he has a bow, but he's given a crown. The red horse, he's given a large sword. The prices are shouted down from heaven. Perhaps John is reminding his readers that while God may not be causing these things, he's allowing these horsemen to ride. And even though you don't always understand, even though it doesn't make sense to us, God is on his throne. He's still in control, even in the midst of tribulation. So you ask the question, Pastor, I'm a little confused. Is this tribulation going to happen in the future, or are you saying that it's happening now? Yes. It's not either or, it's both and more. I shared my view with you last week. I do believe there will be an intensification of suffering toward the end. But I also don't want us to miss the fact that tribulation is very real for many, many people today. And even post-millennialists, the most optimistic of all the views, even post-millennialists fully acknowledge that suffering always comes to God's people. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Wow. 
Aren't you just getting encouraged and built up? Isn't it wonderful to be lifted like this? Yeah. But can we just have a moment of candor here? For most of us in this room, our tribulation can hardly be called tribulation. It's certainly not great. Now, I know there are exceptions, so please have grace with me here. I know that some of you have suffered more than I could even imagine, but I also know that there's a tendency in our lives to have our very attitude and our whole outlook determined by things that are rather trivial in the big scheme of things, right? This week, this week, Debbie and I, had a copper pipe in our house. Our house is, it's, I think it was built in 1941. And there's this copper pipe in our basement that sprung a leak. And it began to drip, drip, drip. We had to catch the water in a plastic container. Can you believe a pastor would have to suffer great tribulation like that? Can you believe that? I was bent out of shape for two days over that, fussing and fuming until finally I picked up the phone and had to call someone to come and replace that pipe. Don't you feel sorry for me? What deep and tragic suffering. A leaking pipe. That's not tribulation. That's trivia. Do you know we have brothers and sisters all around this world that would be thrilled to have a leaking pipe? They don't have a pipe at all bringing water to their house. Oh, for some fresh water coming through a pipe? Are you kidding me? So what does that say about our definition of challenge or suffering? We have friends and Brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, they know what great tribulation is all about. And as we read on in these seals, seal number five, we get introduced here to a question that always comes during times of tribulation. Here it is, verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. Catch those phrases. Here's the question. How long? Here's the answer. A little longer. I underlined those phrases in my Bible until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. How long? Answer, a little longer. So we've got to learn to hold on. Whatever the suffering is, we're enduring. Now this sixth seal, verses 12 through 17, seems to describe something so cataclysmic, many commentators believe it's describing the end of the world. And I always like to give you a little homework assignment. For those of you who are eager Bible students, I think you'll have your mind really intrigued if when you go home, you compare the sixth seal and all that it involves And read it side by side with Jesus, what is called the Olivet Discourse. If you go home and read Luke 21 
Mark 13, Matthew 24, and compare the details, I I think you'll be amazed. But let's look at what it says. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Look at what they did. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can withstand this? Who can survive this? Now, again, there are many people who say here, John is describing a nuclear holocaust. He's just trying to describe it in words that make sense to him. And so he talks about stars falling from the sky. And and people in the post-millennial, amillennial camps that we talked about last week who take all this more symbolically say, come on, guys, you've got to get straight now on this because stars can't fall to the earth. Surely this is symbolic. Stars are bigger than the earth. So you can't have stars falling to the earth. And so people say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's got to be symbolic to some degree. Maybe it's a meteor shower he's describing, you know, where many meteorites are hitting the earth. Others say, oh, no, 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 this is more provocative than that. This is describing nuclear missiles that are tipped on the end with active nuclear warheads. And the sun turning black here is simply the result of the dust and the debris from these nuclear blasts. And so the atmosphere is being pushed apart in John's description because of this nuclear explosion. Pastor, is that true? I don't know. I personally don't believe so. But whatever the case here, one thing is clear. He's describing devastation. Everyone is affected by this sixth seal. And the question that we're left with is who can stand? How are we going to get through this? Philip Yancey tells the true story about some Americans during World War II who were imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp. And the soldiers had secretly built a sort of makeshift radio that they regularly listened to, obviously keeping it from the knowledge of the guards. They knew they would take it away immediately if they found out about the radio. And as they were listening to the radio one day, they found out that the German high command had surrendered and the war was actually over. But because of a communication breakdown... The commandants of this prison camp and all of the guards there hadn't received that information yet. It actually wasn't until four days later when these American prisoners woke up and the Nazi guards had fled in the night and left the doors open and they were finally able to leave. But Yancey says during those three days when they had that knowledge and those guards did not have that knowledge yet, These American prisoners were changed. 
They approached life very differently because of what they knew. They actually waved and smiled at the guards. They laughed at the vicious guard dogs who growled at them. They sang songs and rejoiced and told jokes as they ate their meals together. Oh, they were still suffering, still mocked and abused, but they had changed. Why? Because they knew salvation was sure. They knew it was soon. And so in Revelation 6, we read about this suffering, and we're left with this question, who can stand? And in chapter 7 comes a resounding answer. It gives us a picture of those who have come through this incredible suffering. So let's begin to look at that quickly. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And catch this now. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, here's a place where the commentators just go crazy and spend a lot of time and spill a lot of ink debating what this might represent. Let me just quickly tell you what I think because I don't have even close to the time to go into the various theories. I believe that in this code language, 12 represents the people of God. And so you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the New Testament people of God. But the number given here is not just 144, 12 times 12. No, it's 144,000, right? That's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is the number of completion in apocalyptic literature. So I believe, personally, this 144,000 just represents the full, complete Israel of God. In other words, all of God's people from both Old and New Testaments. But notice, it's pretty specific. It says that they're comprised from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. To many people, they say that's just incredibly confusing. The dispensational premillennialists that we studied last week teach here that this represents 12,000 celibate Jewish men from each of these 12 tribes who will go around the earth during that seven years evangelizing and sharing the gospel. To many, that is a very convincing argument. They link it with chapter 14 where it says these people had not defiled themselves with women for they had kept themselves pure. But I personally don't go with that view. I think that there's no way this is describing natural Israel because the list is too messed up. Dan and Ephraim are totally left out of it. Joseph is added. Joseph's not one of the 12 tribes. His sons were. But Dan, you can't just leave Dan and Ephraim out. You can't just add Joseph. This is an abnormal list. It's stylized. 
And I believe that John is giving us an interesting idea here. You see, if you walked up to any Jewish person in the first century and said, hey, could you list for me the 12 tribes? Invariably, he would start with Reuben, the firstborn. But this list, as we're going to see, doesn't start with Reuben. It starts with Judah. And of course, you know about Judah that Jesus, our Lord, came from the tribe of Judah. So I believe John is telling us this group I'm describing here doesn't represent natural Israel, but the new Israel of God, all those who truly belong to him, whatever their race. So let's go on and look at it. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. And he goes on here and he just keeps describing them. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. I love this part. Then one of the elders asked me, That's not in the text. These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, oh, he will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't think this is two separate groups. I think this is all describing this massive group of people in heaven who are celebrating the victory, waving the palm branches, singing salvation belongs to our God because the war is over. And you know, if there's a message you might want to take away today, it might be just that. The war is over. Oh, I know the I know that many people don't know that yet. I I know that those in charge of the prison camp of this world may not have realized it, but the war is over. And so what's the message here as we close? The message of Revelation actually continues to be quite simple. Here it is. If you're not ready, get ready. Because Jesus is coming. 
And if you're struggling and you're experiencing tribulation, the message is hold on. Be faithful. Wait a little longer because Jesus is coming. Well, John Ortberg went to see Mabel. And he says that a lot of times he would go into this convalescent home that smelled of sickness and stale urine. And he would sit down on Mabel's bedside and he would read her scripture. And a lot of times she would just break in and begin to quote the scripture because she knew it by heart. And he said many times he would take a hymn book and he would begin to sing hymns with Mabel. And sometimes, well, she would sing along even though she was totally blind and almost deaf, she would sing right along. She knew them by heart. And sometimes she would stop him and and make comments on certain verses because they meant so much to her because of what she'd gone through in her life. He said the amazing thing is Mabel didn't talk about pain or, or loneliness or the bad conditions around her. She just talked about her longing for heaven. And for 25 years, she had lived here, strapped to this hospital bed. And one day, John Ortberg says he was sitting with her, and he asked her, Mabel, what do you think about? He had his pen and paper ready because he wanted to write this down. He said, here you are. You've been here 25 years, day after day. What do you you think about? She said, oh, I think about my Jesus. He said, well, Mabel, what do you think about Jesus? He said, oh, I think about how he's been awfully good to me in my life. Then she said, Jesus is all the world to me. And then she broke into that old song, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. You know, Mabel understands revelation that Jesus is our hope and he's going to come and liberate us from the prison camp of sin that is this world. So get ready. His coming is sure and his coming is soon. Father, Thank you for your amazing word that always brings hope, always brings clarity, and always gives us direction for how we can hold on in spite of what we may be going through. For those today who could truly identify with brothers and sisters all over this planet who are going through great tribulation of one time or one kind or another, I ask for your amazing comfort. May the message of this book resound in their hearts. Hold on. Jesus is coming. But Lord, how long? A little longer. Hold on. Hold on. And may that message give us hope and keep us pursuing you, whatever life may bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.